This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we're so glad that you can be with us. We broadcast online, wagp.net, 24-7 around the world, and again, locally here at 88.7 FM. If you are, again, new to the Bible line, for the next hour, we will take people's questions as they've been studying God's Word, or maybe there's a challenge in their life, their family, their ministry, or they're seeking to understand how to apply a certain biblical principle, all you need to do is, again, pick up the line locally. It's 843, the South Carolina Exchange, 843-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And Rick is with me, and he's wearing his mask. He he thinks I have cooties over here, and so uh, he's distancing himself. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because that was what I kind of thought about this whole coronavirus thing. Was it didn't when we were kids, we used to say, "Oh, you're you, you've got cooties. I'm staying away from <laughs> That's you." Right. That's right. How, how long is this thing going to last, Rick? What do you think? Oh, even so, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> well, you know, I I sent a dove out. Uh, from my bathroom window, and, and he, he, didn't br- he didn't bring anything back, but I'm waiting when he brings a piece of toilet paper back. I figure it's over, you know, so we'll see. <laughs> All anyway. right. Well, we have a number of questions that have come in, and uh, the first is from a, a listener who asks, if a couple is able to have children, but they decide not to, to pursue careers or, or live life without any kids, would God call that wrong? I know children are a blessing from the Lord, but does God want Christians to have children? Is that a biblical commandment? Yes, it is. It really, truly is. Um, God says, uh, ever before the law was established in the book of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. That's what God says. He wants us to have children. And the sad thing is, is that, you know, Muslims sometimes are having six and seven and eight children, and Christians who could have more are only having one or two. Now, look, my hat is off to anyone who is unable to have a child. That's one thing. And again, sometimes even then the Lord would lead them to adopt, but not always. Adoption is not for everyone, and sometimes God just has a different plan for a couple. But if you are physically able and equipped by God to have children, that is a command. Be fruitful and multiply. And uh, the whole idea of you know finding significance in a career is not a biblical principle for a woman. God says that he assumes that she is going to have children in First Timothy uh, when he speaks of, um, you know, the role of women in First Timothy 5 and again in Titus 2 when he says older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that what? They may encourage the young women to do what? To love their children. So there's an assumption that women will have children. 
And that is a high and holy role. So as I mentioned in First Timothy, um, God says uh, when he gives the roles of men and women in the local assembly, he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? Because first the order of creation, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And then he says it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. In other words, uh, Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. In one sense, his sin was greater, whereas Eve was deceived. And the reason she was deceived is because she had stepped out of her God-given role. And when you step out of the will of God, what God has called you to, and she was to really acknowledge her husband as the head, uh, then you are out of fellowship with God and you open yourself up to deception. But then the next verse is so important. But women, women is uh, italicized in the NASB, meaning it's not in the Greek text, but it's implied, and certainly contextually that is clear, speaking about women. But women will be preserved, how? Through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and restraint. I I have a whole sermon just on this very issue. She she will be preserved or saved. Uh, There's three tenses to sanctification in the New Testament. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin as we grow up in Christ, and someday we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. So in broad terms, we speak of justification, sanctification, and glorification. But here he is speaking of really the sanctifying process, that part of the sanctifying process that God has for women is to have children and to bring them up in the discipline and knowledge of the Lord. And so he uh, he writes of uh, Timothy, who had, had been greatly empowered and influenced by his mother and his grandmother. And that is no small thing. That is a big thing in the eyes and the hearts of the Lord. But, you know, women today, by the time they get to college, I mean, they are just hammered. What is your career going to be? And it's not necessarily that you're not going to have children, but what's your career going to be? Because to stay home and to raise children is viewed as antiquated, is outdated, is less than admirable for a woman when God really highly esteems that. And so we're not smarter than God. God is so much wiser than we are. And we are to listen to heed his counsel and so he says um, in Second Timothy, you, however, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Why? Because there was a mother in the home who was teaching them, and so he affirms in this book uh, his mother and his grandmother. Uh, God says in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And so God views children as a gift, and he views them as a blessing. Now, this person who, again, I'm assuming they're asking from a very sincere heart, uh, you're not going to say, well, God, you've blessed me with too much good health. Let me catch the virus. I don't think so. Or you're not going to reason, God, you know, we just have too much material good. Stop blessing me. No, um, open the pipeline up so I can be even more generous and give to the work of the Lord and see your provision. But somehow when we come to children, we view them differently, and we're not. That's the culture uh, training us to think that way. And so part of being 
matured in Christ is to find out what the Bible says and to have our minds renewed. So children are to be viewed as a blessing from God. And so we should never speak in a despairing way about them. Oops, we didn't know this child was coming. You know, what are we going to name the child? Oops. You know, just kind of negative talk. That's the world speaking. That's not the way a child of God is to describe the children that God has blessed them with. They are gifts, and we are to shape them. We are to um, mold them. Uh, and to do everything that we can so that they will grow up and meet Christ in a personal, life-changing way. Fantastic question. We could spend an hour on that, but let's go on to the next. All right. Our next caller says, I've heard some pastors say that while marriage is supposed to be permanent, God is merciful and has created bounds in which a spouse can divorce their spouse. Essentially, they hold that when Jesus speaks on divorce, he means that you are to stay married to the person as long as They are good, while Moses was speaking to a different situation, that God is in favor of divorce if the spouses are bad. They hold that there are valid grounds for divorce. Is this biblically accurate? Are there situations where God would say it is okay to get a divorce, for example, if a spouse is cheating or is abusive, etc.? Well, these are great questions, and they need to be asked in our day because we have such a low view of marriage today and we really don't enter into the marriage relationship with a sense of fear and trembling. And so it's not until death do us part, it's still divorce do us part. Jesus in Luke sixteen eighteen says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. Straightforward, no exception, just straight out. Um, in another account, In Mark chapter 10, let me just turn over there for a moment. Uh, It's an interesting setting in that they are in a a place that uh, there was a lot of dispute. And so we're told getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered around him. And according to his custom, once more, he began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, well, what did Moses command? They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, here's what God intended. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh They are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, or you could render it, let no man divorce. It's the same word. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. There it is straight out, no exceptions He couldn't have said it any plainer. When we go to Romans chapter 7, Paul is illustrating the believer's relationship to the law. And there he says, Or do you not know, brethren, that I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, She is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined, or you could render it, she is married, as many translations put it, 
She is joined or married to another man. She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So again, straight out, no exceptions. The only thing that severs the marriage relationship is is death. But if your husband is still alive and you marry another, you're doing what Jesus says in Mark 10, uh, Luke uh, 16, 18, you've committed adultery. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let me turn over there for a moment. Uh, there, the apostle Paul gives instructions. It's kind of interesting how he says it. Seven one is a hinged verse in the book of 1 Corinthians, not concerning the things about which you wrote. And so the Corinthians had written him on a number of different issues. And so beginning in seven one, really through the end of the the epistle, he begins to tick off uh, answers to the questions that they ask him. And they have a lot of family, marriage, single kind of issues. And so he says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Now, that the flip of that is given a few verses later in 1 Corinthians seven twelve. but to the rest I say, not the Lord. So on the one hand, he says in verse 10, I give instructions, but not really me, the Lord. In the other verse, he says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, meaning this is not an issue that Jesus spoke of, but as his apostle, I am going to tell you authoritatively what he would want you to know. And so there are many issues that Jesus did not address in his public ministry, but he promised the divine inspiration of the apostles to speak on his behalf, and that's what we have in the uh, 27 books of the New Testament. So to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And if the shoe's on the other foot, and that the husband should not divorce or leave or separate from his wife. So when did Jesus speak of this? When he says, well, this is not something that I came up with. This is what Jesus came up with. This is Jesus's teaching on the permanency of marriage, uh, as Paul echoed in Romans 7, as we just quoted from Luke sixteen eighteen, as we just read from Mark chapter 10, that only death can sever the relationship. With that said, Paul recognizes there are times when the wife might need to leave her husband. Let's say he is committed in multiple, he's in multiple adulterous relationships. Uh, That's not good for you as a wife. Or the flip could be said, uh, you're going to bring disease into your body. God created the body uh, in the marriage relationship as a closed system and disease can enter in if it's a closed system. And so uh, maybe there's a situation where, you know, a husband comes home and he literally beats on his wife. Would I encourage a woman to uh, be under the same roof with a guy who abuses her physically? Of course not. Uh, She needs to take care of the body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and to protect it. Would I say that's a reason for divorce? No, I wouldn't. Uh, It might be a reason to seek protection but not divorce. So he says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, allowing certain situations where that might happen, what are her options? She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So that's consistent what Jesus said, because only 
Um, death can sever the marriage relationship. So he's really clear. And at the end of this chapter, he says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes in the Lord. Now, the one exception that you find, it's actually recorded twice in the New Testament. It's recorded in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's recorded in Matthew chapter 19. And so, again, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And remember, there were basically two schools of thought in Jesus's day on this, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. One school said you can divorce your wife for any reason that you want. And the debate was over a a verse that Moses had written as to how you should, you know, interpret the verse. And interestingly, one school said, look, if your wife burns the meal and you don't like the way she cooks or her voice is, you know, obnoxious to you, you can divorce her. The other school said, no, the only uh, case for divorce is if your wife has been maritally unfaithful. And again, the debate was over this verse. It's in the second law, Deuteronomus, we call Deuteronomy from the Septuagint. The Jews have a different title for it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and and sends her out from her house, um, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and, and if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her to be his wife since she has been defiled. For this is an abomination. And I can promise you anything that God calls an abomination in the Old Testament is still an abomination in the New Testament. When God says for a man to lie with a man is an abomination, for a man to lie with an animal, it's an abomination. It still is, I promise you. And so what you technically had here was a a legalized form of adultery. Oh, yeah, you know, I married this woman. I'm tired of her. Go get married again. I divorced the second one. Want to go back to the first. God says no. It's impossible. It's in his eyes. He doesn't want that to happen. And so they're questioning him over these two schools of thought, the school of Halal and the school of Shammai. And he answered and he said, well, haven't you read what the scripture says? God made a male and female. And then he quotes again, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one. They're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate or divorce. They said, well, why then did Moses allow a certificate of divorce? And he said, because if you're Hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. So again, God's original intention was one man, one woman until death severs them. But under the hardness of the old covenant, the Spirit of God had a different relationship in both the world and in the church. There was only a handful of people. I say a handful, less than 500, but it's a handful when you think of the millions of Jewish people who followed God, not to mention proselytes who were Gentiles converted to the God of Israel, and they acknowledged him as the one true God. When you think of the millions of followers under the old covenant, there's less than 500 
who had any kind of a special relationship with the Holy Spirit, and even those 500 or less, I had a relationship that doesn't compare to the New Testament, the New Covenant. Uh, So one, there was a difference in terms of how the Spirit worked in believers and even amongst the world. And so the promise that Jesus gave after the ascension is he was going to send the Spirit who would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so there was a hardness in the fallenness of man. And that's why you could have a guy like David who had five wives and still be considered a man after God's own heart because of the hardness of heart. Will you meet Solomon in heaven? Yes, he had a bunch of wives. It was because, and some of them were purely political, you know, for political causes, because you marry this guy's daughter over here, and now you're friends with him, and, and there'll be peace in the kingdom. And But listen, it was still wrong, and God allowed certain things under the hardness of heart. King David wouldn't be considered a believer today under the new covenant because polygamists or bigamists would be considered as, you know, unfaithful, immoral people and not even believers. So we're living under a different covenant. And so Jesus then says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, I read that without the exception. Let me read it with the exception. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Let me read it to you how most people read it in their minds. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. But no English translation reads that way. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality or sexual immorality or fornication or whatever way they would render that Greek word and marries another woman commits adultery. Two different thoughts in mind. The text says, I say to you, ever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits moikeia. So he has two distinct thoughts in mind. Um, and this exception, by the way, is found only here in Matthew's gospel. Why? Because Matthew is written to Jews, and Jews alone practice what we refer to as betrothal. And so if during the betrothal period when you were considered husband and wife, and there are four such Old Testament examples, one in the New, we find, for instance, Joseph is called the husband of Mary, yet he had not slept with her. Uh, He had not had any kind of physical relationship with Mary, yet he's called her husband. Why? Because they were betrothed. And so during the betrothal period, if one had been found to be unfaithful, then the righteous thing to do would be to sever the relationship. And yet Joseph, because he was a righteous man and loved Mary, didn't want to disgrace her publicly. He was going to put her away or divorce her secretly. But he had had no relationship. But was he doing technically what was righteous in God's sight? Yes, because he assumed Mary had been unfaithful to him during this betrothal period. And that's why you find an exception in Matthew's gospel. And by the way, for nearly 1,600 years of church history, that's the way people understood the exception clause. The church fathers, all the writings that we have up until the time of Erasmus, and Erasmus was a Roman Catholic who fought tooth and nail over Martin Luther on the issue of justification by grace alone through faith alone. And he introduced the idea that adultery after the relationship gave um, permission to sever the relationship and for someone to remarry. 
and some of the Protestant reformers were influenced by him, and that's now pretty much the popular view of our day. But even there, Erasmus, along with the reformers, would say only the innocent party had freedom to remarry. That if you were the innocent party and you weren't guilty of it, but I don't think that's what the text is referring to. Uh, I think um, this would be consistent with what Paul does when he applies it. Well, you know, if she must leave, what are her options? Remain single or be reconciled to her husband. And then the end of the chapter, a woman is bound by her husband as long as he's alive, but if he dies, she's free to remarry. And again, I think the disciples understand that Jesus carried this beyond anything the school of Shammai or Hallel held to, because they said to him in verse 10 of Matthew 19, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to be married. That's what they conclude. Lord, if you've made it this tight, Maybe it's just better never to get married. And Jesus said, no, look, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The only other exception is found in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus addresses this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart for her has already committed adultery in the heart. So he deals with that. And then he says, whoever sends his wife away, let, you've heard it said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, so you've got this You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. All the way through this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity. Again, it's the same concept. Sex during the betrothal period um, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How do you make her commit adultery? Well, She's still, you know, responsible for her decision, but a woman in that day was basically penniless and helpless without a man. And so you actually encouraged her to do what was wrong. And so these are serious things, and this is why we need to help young men and women understand God's ideal. With that said, uh, there's forgiveness, but just because someone can be forgiven for murder or for stealing or for having an abortion, or for adultery, or for remarriage, doesn't make it right. We still need to teach what God has said. So the way you described it in your wording was pretty loose, whoever told you that, and it's really not very accurate. You might want to go online and get the full teaching on this. Uh, If you go to the New Search the Scriptures website, and you can um, search for this sermon and in, in, in it's found under Matthew's gospel and um, Matthew 19. I addressed this in really an hour long. I've just covered it in 10 minutes. So let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Charles from Beaufort would like to know the following. How would I properly tithe the sale of our home? How would I make the proper calculation here? My wife and I want to honor the Lord here and also want to be in accordance with his word. Well, this is a good question. Depends on your situation and setting, and, uh, but the principles remain true. 
uh, if you you always tithe off of the increase. Someone asked uh, a week or so ago about their business. Do they tithe off of the gross or do they tithe off of you know the net? Well, you tithe off of your income. And so if you have a business where you paint houses, say, and you sell a job for $10,000 and it costs you $4,000 in materials and the income you make is $6,000 and uh, then you pay your workers and people who help you and and then you pay yourself $2,000, that's the taxable income. That's what you tithe off of. And you could take that same principle and apply it here. And and by the way, some people say, well, I guess then if I get paid $2,000, then what I do is I pay my light bill and my mortgage payment and then whatever. No, that's, that's a total, you know, twisting of what I've just said. But the principle, let's say you buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars and you live in it for 10 years and you sell it for $200,000. You've made a hundred thousand dollars profit. Now, if you're down and over with that house and you're not going to, you know, reinvest that money and um, I'm an accountant by training and so I'm not giving you accounting advice because I know as an accountant that laws change all the time. But the last time I looked, you still had 18 months to reinvest the capital gain without putting tax, paying tax on it. So if you took that hundred thousand dollars in capital gain and you put it into your next house then um, you haven't received any income and neither did you have to pay any tax on it you pay on the gain but let's just say you say no I'm going to uh, this house that I sold for two hundred thousand I'm gonna put a hundred and fifty thousand of it into my next house well then you have to pay capital gain tax on 50 so 50,000 is considered income to you and that's what you would tithe off of or so i hope that makes sense and and technically how do you determine the basis here's how the government would determine the basis if you bought a house for 100,000 and you added an addition to it where you put a $25,000 addition on it so now you got 125 into the house and you sold it for 150 then they would take your base, and your base is what you paid for it plus improvements, not repairs, not painting the house or putting a new roof on it or fix it, a, you know, rotted siding or changing the door, only improvements. And there's a certain category that becomes your base. And, and these are good things to keep track of, by the way, so that when you do sell a home, uh, you know what your actual base is, but you have to have receipts to document that along the way. So there are things that are considered in your base. But again, what becomes increase uh, that is put in your hand? And this is a general principle. What God puts in your hand, that's what you tithe off. Now, it might be that in the end, you, you've lived in your last house and you're going to you know, tithe off of whatever you've made on it. But what God puts in your hand, that's what you tithe off of. That's the general biblical principle. But this raises a good subject because I do have a whole course on this. And it's what God says about our finances. It's not for the weary, but for the person who really wants to understand what God says. I like guys like Dave Ramsey, but Dave doesn't give much of a biblical basis for why he believes what he believes. And there's a few things I wouldn't agree with Dave Ramsey on. Um, But overall, he is reflecting biblical principles. Uh, But because he has really a larger secular audience than he does a Christian audience, 
at least the one book that someone gave me, uh, there were three scriptural references in the whole book. Now, there were biblical principles reflected through the whole book, but only three references. And without understanding, no, this is what God actually says about giving, about saving, about investing, about, you know, whatever subject of money that God is addressing. Without that, you will tend not to stick with the program. So our minds have to be renewed and convinced from God's word that this is what he says, and then accordingly we we apply it. So I have a whole course on it. You can get it at searchthescriptures.org. Where would they go at searchthescriptures.org, Rick? Well, the easiest way is to just hit the magnifying glass or the search uh, engine in the upper right-hand corner and type in finances, and uh, it brings up your entire Finances God's Way course, Uh, so I'm looking at financial planning, debt-free living, and uh, uh, prior to that, there were also uh, the introduction to stewardship and uh, saving and investing and debt-free living, uh, part one and two, so that's the easiest way to find it. Okay, good, and there's a whole notebook that goes with it. It's about 130 pages of notes, and so it would be a great study. In fact, when I do premarital counseling... Um, right now I'm counseling. I've got a couple I'll be counseling electronically on Thursday who are supposed to get married next December. And, uh, there's a minimum of six, one hour counseling appointments. And there's about 15 to 20 hours of homework, depending on how fast they work through it. And one of the uh, dimensions of what they have to do is they have to go through the whole course, fill out the whole notebook. And then the application is they have to come up with a budget and then they have to meet with a, a financial counselor, free, no charge to them, who will go through their budget to make sure it's realistic. Why? Because I don't want them to have problems in their marriage relationship. And again, a lot of this goes back to as well what came up in the first question. So one of the things that I encourage them to do is to live off of his salary. If she's still working with no children, you live off of his salary. You don't build a lifestyle on two salaries where you've made all these moral commitments And now little Joey comes along and you've got a house payment that's based on a double salary, not his alone, and all these other things that you've, you know, committed yourself to. So, no, I would say take her money and tithe it. And after you give it to your local church, then you um, maybe save the rest. Maybe it becomes a nest egg to uh, pay off. Um, uh, to um, put a down payment down on a house or maybe to pay off student loans. That's, that's one of the big things that I see all the time now with young couples is they have massive amounts of student loan debt. And uh, so, you know, there's some approaches they can take. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right. Kelly would like to know the following. She says, all of my close friends are Catholic. Should I be trying to encourage them to convert? And if so, what is the best way to do that? One friend is constantly telling me that the Catholic Church is the true church. How do you approach that? Well, it's a good question, and uh, they base the argument the Catholic Church is the true church on an event that took place at Caesarea Philippi. When I go to Israel, I always take take people to this region called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Philip, one of the tetrarchs that you'll find in the New Testament, uh, rebuilt this area. And so there's two Caesareas in the scripture. There's Caesarea by the sea. That's the place that you read out, read up throughout the book of Acts, place, for instance, Paul met Felix and so on. 
it was an incredible place where the governor would have his palace. And then there's Caesarea Philippi. And it's an interesting place for Jesus to posit the question that he asked because it's a place that was covered over in all kinds of worship of false gods. And if you go to Caesarea Philippi on the side of this really mountain, you can see carved in places where there would have been statues where they worshipped and acknowledged different gods. And the god Pan, um, Pan means all, and so we speak of pantheism, um, was worshipped there as well. So when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So uh, some said Elijah. Why Elijah? Because the Bible teaches the second coming of uh, Elijah. Elijah is coming again during this time of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He's going to be one of the two witnesses that the revelation speaks of. Uh, So we know Elijah is coming back. In addition, John the Baptist had been beheaded by this time. And and so, oh, yeah, he's John. He's up from the dead and so on. But, but who do you say that I am? And you here is in the plural. Who do you all, you could say, say that I am? It's plural in Greek. Uh, that's one of the disadvantages of modern English and old English. Old English uh, uh, went ahead and separated out the plural you from the singular you and so on, different pronouns. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own, but my father who's in heaven, he revealed it to you. And I say to you that you are Peter. Uh, If you have a translation like the New American Standard, usually when there's a play on words in the Greek or a different nuance that's intended that it will not be picked up in the English Bible, then they will footnote it out in the margin. So if you have, for instance, the New American Standard with marginal notes, it says, for you are Peter, Petros, it means a stone. And upon this rock, upon this Petra, it referred to a large rock, to a bedrock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now understand that uh, the, the Latin Bible that was done by Jerome, Jerome uh, lived... Uh, in the 4th century, and he moved to Bethlehem. And again, if you go to Israel with me, if it's accessible, and sometimes it's not because it's a Roman Catholic uh, site, they own it, but we'll go into the cave of Jerome, and occasionally they've got a mass going on in in the room adjacent to the cave, and so you can't get into the cave. But if possible, we always go into the cave of Jerome. And when you go in there... It's a place where he lived for 35 years. You can see the actual steps. It's kind of underground. You walk down these steps, and it was this, it was really quite uh, fashionable, I suppose you could say, for a first-century room. But there he took the Bible, and he learned Greek, and the reason he was living in Bethlehem was so that the rabbis there could teach him Hebrew, and he translated the Bible into Latin. It's called the Vulgate. Often you'll hear it called the Latin Vulgate. The challenge with Latin, which was really the language of the scholars, and by the way, it was the most translated Bible in the history of the church because that was the standard translation that believers who could read Latin used for a thousand years. 
And the sadness, though, of his translation, though it was as accurate as it could be from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic into this receptor language called Latin, is Latin is a limited language. It's a case language, so it has some advantages, like Greek is a case language, but it's still limited, and God didn't inspire the New Testament in Latin. He inspired it in Greek. So if you read it from the Latin Bible, you could come to a false conclusion, which the Roman Catholic Church builds their whole premise on. And I say to you, you are Peter. And in Latin, it means you are a rock. And upon this rock, people say, well, that's Peter. I will build my church. But that's not what the Greek New Testament says. And even if you didn't know Greek or Latin, but you just had an English Bible that you'd read enough, again, sometimes there is other scripture that tells you what a verse cannot mean. You may not know exactly what it does mean, but you can know what it does not mean. And clearly, he is not building the church on a man. He built the church on himself. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the bedrock. He is the rock upon which the church is built. But that fine nuance comes out in the Greek language. I say to you, you're Peter, you're a stone. And upon this rock, referring to himself, I'm going to build the church. But the Catholic Bible, they build the whole doctrine of the papacy over a Latin translation. And then they take the next verse, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again, they would say the keys are representative of authority and Uh, The authority is passed down from pope to pope to pope to pope. So if you go to a place like Capernaum, which is uh, an important place, or if you go to uh, Tabitha, which is a place like if you go to Tabitha, where that's the place where Jesus did a miracle, where um, if you remember on after Resurrection Sunday, the guys are out fishing, not because they've renounced the faith or they're in some depression or so much nonsense that's preached sometimes and that misses the whole context and of that passage in John 21, much less the rest of the New Testament. Uh, clearly, they're not in some depression led by Peter, and they're despondent, so they decide to go fishing. And some, I heard a sermon once, yeah, Peter just quit. He had had enough. He was he was done with it. So I'm going back to fishing. I mean, no, he was actually right in the center of God's will because they weren't supposed to do anything in terms of ministry until the Holy Spirit came. Uh, they didn't sit in the upper room for 40 days. That's clear from other passages. But they were to wait until the promise of the Spirit of God came. And so they're out fishing. Look, they got to feed themselves. They've got to eat. And, but if you go to this place called Tabga, it's a, uh, actually an Aramaic word that means the place of seven springs. And actually, it's one of the places where six of the seven springs have actually been found. The place is it's a place of warm springs. And so if you are a fisherman, you know that when the water gets cold, if you go to a place that's shallower and there's a lot of sunlight, that that's where the fish are going to congregate more. And with that said, this is a place of warm springs. So when you looked at the Sea of Galilee, this is the warmest water on the Sea of Galilee, and that's the place you go fishing. 
And interestingly, this is the place where Jesus did a miracle twice, a little bit different. But when he first uh, called the disciples to a deeper walk with him, it's recorded in Luke, they're fishing in this place. And the time of the year is when the waters out in the Sea of Galilee were cold. So you go with a fish bite. And they'd spent all night fishing and hadn't caught anything. And so now, again, it's the um, April time frame of uh, Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem on April the 6th, 32 AD, and on Friday that week died on a cross and was raised on Sunday. And so the waters are still very cold. And so this is a short time after the resurrection, and they're out there fishing, and they fished all night long, but they're in this place where the water would be most likely to catch a fish. And so Jesus gives them the opposite advice. He says, put out into the deep, go out further. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. The, the further we go out, the colder the water gets. But they, for whatever reason, listen, and, of course, they catch 151 fish. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle that the Lord performed. And they recognize this is the Lord. But when you go to that place, and I went down a rabbit trail, but when you go to that place, you will see a picture of every single pope as they see it, beginning with Peter right down to Pope Francis. And it's a chart of all the popes. Of course, there's times in uh, the history of the church where there was three popes at one time and two popes at one time, and you had these debates, and who is the real pope? Well, they've supposedly sorted all that out. But this has absolutely nothing to do, Matthew 16, with the papacy. That's not what he's speaking of. He is just affirming Peter as a stone that what he has come to understand, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Son of the living God, that he didn't figure that out on his own, but the Father revealed it to him and that he is going to build the church upon himself as the rest of the New Testament affirms. So with that said, let me get to the specifics of your question. Should you try to win your person out of Catholicism? My first answer would be no. Your first goal is to win them to Jesus, not to win them to your Baptist church or your Methodist church or your you know, non-denominational church. Your first goal is to win them to Jesus Christ, to share the plan of salvation with them. Now, there are born-again Roman Catholics who, through their own study of Scripture, many times in ignorance, they don't know that their church denies justification by grace alone through faith alone, and through their own personal study of Scripture or listening to some pastor, uh, have been born again. They've put their faith in Christ alone and in his death, burial, and resurrection to save them from the penalty of sin. So they're already regenerate. Uh, but most are lost because the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent reaffirmed Vatican I, Vatican II, the Council of Cardinals in 2010, deny this doctrine that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And so if you believe that as a Catholic, you can, you can believe a lot of wrong things and go to heaven. You can believe the Pope's God's man, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never had any other children, that the presence of Christ is in the Eucharist, and all these crazy, unbiblical doctrines. You could believe those and still go to heaven, but you cannot be wrong on justification by grace alone through faith alone. That's the gospel that God is asking you to believe that will make you a true Christian. And again, if someone's heart is open, God will get the truth to that person. I was raised Catholic. God got the truth to me. And I was raised as a Catholic at a time 
in U.S. history where Catholics were much more serious than they are today. Catholics have become a lot like Protestants. It used to, we'd drive to church on Sunday, and my dad would often comment, look at that, the kids over there, there's only three cars in that parking lot. And then we'd go by on Easter, and there they are, you know, those Protestants. They go to church twice a year, Christmas and, and Easter, and that's when they turn out. And Well, now that's true of a lot of Catholics. They just go a few times a year, so they've become a lot like us. But I grew up in a time when we took it seriously. And I first learned under the Latin Mass, and then we went to English, and you carried your missalette to church every week, and you jumped through all the hoops that they asked you to. God reached me. He can reach anyone. So you want to win them to Jesus. That's what you want to do. And you say, well, I'm not sure what I would say. Then send them to searchthescriptures.org, and right there on the homepage, would you like to know God as your friend? And you could say, hey, would you watch this and give me your opinion on it? Give me your opinion on this message. I would love to know what you think, and they will hear the plan of salvation, and there will be some questions asked at the front end of the sermon. Or come to a meet the pastor if you live locally, or right now we, can take, we can't take more than 10, but you can live stream when we have our meet the pastors. The last two have been live streamed, and we won't have one on Easter, but we'll have one a week from Easter the Sunday after Easter at 5.30, and you can come up till 10 people, or you can live stream. And that's something you could do with your friend, and you can say, hey, tell me what you think, and give me your opinion. Most people are not turned off when you ask them for their opinion. If you approach them, look, you're Catholic and you're lost. And what, unfortunately, a lot of evangelicals do is they run down the road of, hey, how can the Pope be God's man? Or they get on all these secondary issues that are important, but they're not issues that are going to disqualify someone from entering the kingdom of God. So you want to keep to the main things. And then once the person is regenerated, and then they start reading the Bible, and that becomes critical at this point, where you get them into the scriptures, they're going to see contradiction after contradiction after contradiction between what the Roman church teaches and what the Bible teaches. The same is true if someone's being raised in a liberal denomination, a a liberal Protestant denomination. If they're born again, they're going to start seeing contradiction after contradiction after contradiction between what their Protestant pastor is teaching them and what the Scripture is actually saying. And then they will see, hey, I need to get out of this pit. And I need to be, like Scripture says, with born-again people. And sometimes I'll say to a person, they'll say, well, you know, I I grew up in this church, and my dad went here, and my granddad went here, and my great-granddad went here, and they're all buried out back, and I'm going to go here, and I'll say, well, look, if they could get up and leave, they would, but they can't, but you should, and you're able to, and God tells you not to forsake the assembling together with the brethren. Well, I think there's a lot of Christians there. I'll say, do a little survey. Ask the pastor how a person's born again. I mean, if you could go to this church, sometimes I'll tell them for 25 years, and you've never heard the plan of salvation that I just presented to you, you're in the wrong church. You got the blind leading the blind. And so, again, you want to first win them to Christ, get them into the scriptures, and they'll leave the Catholic church. It's just a matter of time. They'll leave out of obedience to Christ. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Um, we've got about three and a half minutes left. Uh, Tim would like to know the following about the resurrection of Jesus. Who raised him? Some people say God the Father did, but doesn't the Bible say the Father did, the Holy Spirit did, and didn't Jesus say he'd raise himself? I've been trying to witness to a Jehovah Witness. I would like this 
as proof of the Trinity, if I'm correct. Well, it is a good proof of the Trinity, and you raise a great issue. So I taught a course on pneumatology. Pneumatos is the Greek word for spirit, and so pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And what's kind of interesting is you read through the Bible is that while God is one and there are three co-eternal, co-equal persons within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, they can have different roles, but still they share roles. So like who created the world? Well, if you read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. You'd say, well, the Father did. And yet you read Job and the Psalm, and you say, wait a minute, the Spirit created the world. And you read Colossians, wait a minute, all things were made and created through Christ. So who created the world? Each member of the Godhead. Who raised Christ from the dead? Well, depends on the passage you're reading. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, oh, who's giving, who's being given credit for having raised Jesus from the dead? Um, the spirit. Um, Romans 1, 4, he was declared the son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit. So he came out of the grave by the spirit. Yet in Ephesians, who's credited with raising Jesus from the dead? God the Father. Uh, he's credited in Acts 2, 24, Acts 3, 15, Acts 10, Acts 13, um, and so on, over and over and over and over again. Who else is credited with raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus himself, he said, no one is going to take my life away from me. I'll lay it down on my own authority. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. So each member of the Trinity is credited with raising Jesus from the dead. I would say if there's an emphasis, it's like which member of the Trinity gave you a spiritual gift? Well, Ephesians 4 says God the Father did. Uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4 says God the Son did. Romans 12 says God the Father did. 1 Corinthians 12 says God the Spirit did. Every member is involved in the giving of gifts. Why? Because the members, while they're distinct, they're inseparable. But the emphasis certainly would be on the Holy Spirit. And so with that said, yeah, this is a good argument because only God can bring life out of death. And yet the Holy Spirit is credited with doing that, as is God the Son. So there are some functions that the members of the Trinity have that are unique to God. And yet you see each member of the Trinity displaying these very attributes. Well, we're out of time. If you don't have a church to go to for Easter, then go to communitybiblechurch.us. You can download the notes in advance so that you'll be ready for Sunday's sermon. And you can live stream us either at 9.15 or 11. You can live stream us at Facebook. You can live stream us at sermonaudio.com, at communitybiblechurch.us, TV. You can use your Roku or Apple, all kinds of opportunities for you to live stream us. And I invite you to worship with us on Easter. Thanks for being with us. (music) 